As long as we have seen birds fly or fish swim, humans have had a desire to explore and conquer the heights of the sky and the depths of the sea. The machines we use to get to the heights and to the depths are very, very different. One with wings, one with fins, one to explore the stars and find life on distant planets, one to explore the bottom of the ocean and find life yet undiscovered. These two realms have one thing in common, though. Weightlessness. When the astronauts get out of Earth's atmosphere, they experience zero gravity. A feeling of weightlessness. When scuba divers submerge underwater, they experience buoyancy. A feeling of weightlessness. This is Platypus Houston. I'm Kale Unby. In the early 1950s, NASA began to experiment with buoyancy underwater to mimic zero gravity. The first experiments were done in a public pool in Virginia. Imagine those NASA scientists swimming and splashing in the public pool next to the kids who spent their long summers there. Inevitably, the official NASA experiments were hindered by all those kids of the pool, so NASA moved their experiments to a private high school in Maryland. Here, they would have done a number of experiments on how humans act and react in simulated zero gravity, how to design tools and equipment to be used by those humans. NASA didn't do much astronaut training in these buoyancy experiments until the Gemini 11 crew had a particularly difficult time repairing some equipment during their spacewalk. To help give the future astronauts experience working in zero gravity before they went into space, they sent the Gemini 12 crew to train in the pool at McDono, the private school in Maryland. After success in training the Gemini 12 crew, the neutral buoyancy simulation was proved and NASA began to invest in developing their own facility. They converted an old metal fabrication water tank into the first official NASA neutral buoyancy tank. The tank was merely 8 feet deep and only 8 feet in diameter, just big enough to fit pieces of the Skylab into. Even with the previous successes training the Gemini 12 crew, this tank would be primarily used to test equipment for ease of use in zero gravity. The 8-foot-deep tank proved difficult when testing larger equipment, so in 1966, a second tank was acquired as a neutral buoyancy tank. This one was about 18 times larger in volume, 15 feet deep, and 25 feet in diameter. Due to a tight budget, NASA cut a number of corners to get this tank up and running, including using a home pool filter from Sears to filter the whole tank. Alan Bean, an astronaut with the Apollo 12 mission, did a quick test swim in the tank that ended up lasting two hours, ruining a spacesuit, being evacuated by the safety divers, and getting back into the tank using scuba gear. Because Bean was such a big proponent of the neutral buoyancy tank, astronauts began to fill the schedule up, training for spacewalks, 
as opposed to the original intent for the tank, which was to test and develop equipment. It was obvious that a third larger tank was required to adequately train the astronauts, but there was zero budget for a new building or for a new tank. As the Nutribuoyancy team searched for a solution, unfortunately, a leak was found under a nearby NASA building, and the building repair funds were used to lay a new eight-foot foundation for the tank. Uh, I mean, to fix the leak under the building. The third tank was constructed in this manner, using petty cash and some discretionary funds to complete the tank on zero budget. In 1967, the third tank was finished with a 75-foot diameter and 40-foot depth, and an official audit from the GAO, the Government Accountability Office. In the 80s, the WETF, or Weightless Environment Training Facility, was built in Houston at the Johnson Space Center, presumably an even larger pool, and used until 1995. At that point, NASA began building the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, the zero-gravity simulator that is used today. The Neutral Buoyancy Lab, or NBL, is a 200-foot-long by 100-foot-wide pool that goes 40 feet deep and holds 6.2 million gallons of water. To give you a notion for its size, it is roughly two-thirds the size of a football field and about three and a half stories deep. Once the pool was built, it took 28 days to fill the pool with water, and because the water filtration system sits at the top of the pool, it took another month to turn the water from the natural Houston green to the clear bluish it is today. NASA used the NBL to train the astronauts to construct the International Space Station. While the whole thing is too big to fit in at once, mock-ups of part of the ISS were submerged in the pool at a time. As NASA is training fewer and fewer astronauts today in the NBL, more of the NBL is going unused, and a 6.2 million gallon pool costs a lot to upkeep. Luckily, here in Houston, we're known for two industries, NASA and oil. And the oil industry in Houston deals quite a bit with offshore activities. One of the first activities to come to the NBL was an offshore survival training program. Of course, there's the how to survive on a raft for three days lesson and the how to be picked up by a helicopter in the middle of the ocean part of the course. But the coolest part by far is the how to survive a water landing in a helicopter. Basically, it involves sitting in a helicopter replica, being turned upside down and dunked underwater then you have to escape and survive. Of course, there's a lot of training that happens before that particular exercise, but it is a sight to see and probably a great experience to have. Another neat activity that has come to the NBL is training underwater robotics operators. The oil industry uses robots to sense conditions and repair equipment at the bottom of the ocean, and they need somewhere to train the operators because Putting million-dollar robots in the hands of noobs is a costly practice. As space exploration and space travel is moving into the private sector, all of the capital NASA has built up over the last half-century will need new jobs. For the most part, the engineering jobs, the pilots, and the scientists will be able to move to the private sector right along with the rockets and the technology. 
I believe there are other applications for the NASA facilities in Houston and across the nation. But for now, the NBL has found a way to earn its keep by applying its experience with the heights of the sky to the depths of the sea. Platypus Houston is produced by me, Kale Ownby. Special thanks for this episode go to my cousins, Matthews and Ashley, for letting me use their internet over Thanksgiving, and of course my wife, who has supported and encouraged me in the production of every Platypus Houston episode. Music for this episode by Chris Zabriski, Gerdenark, and Andy G. Cohen. Find them and their Creative Commons work at the WFMU Free Music Archive. If you like what you're listening to, go tell someone about it. Yeah, that's it. Just tell someone who you think will enjoy it. It would mean a lot to me. And thank you in advance. If you need to, you can reach me via platypushouston at gmail.com. <laughs>